0: All right, the book of Isaiah, if you'll turn there with me as we begin a new book study together this evening. We finished up the Song of Solomon, and tonight we not only begin the book of Isaiah, but uh, we actually begin really the last, what we might consider, section, if you want to refer to them in that way, in the Old Testament. Of course, the first five books of the Bible we often refer to as the Pentateuch or the books of the law. And then after that, we enter into what are often referred to as the historical books, Joshua, Judges, so on and so forth, carries us through 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Nehemiah, uh, you know, Esther, uh, so forth. Uh, Then ultimately, we came to the poetic books, and as we went through Job and Psalms and Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and then I know the absolute favorite, most recently, the Song of Solomon, and we tied up the end of that last week, and now we begin Isaiah, which will take us now through the remainder of the Old Testament, and now we come into this section that we often refer to as the prophetic books, and of course, broken into what often people refer to as the major prophets and the minor prophets. Now, that has nothing to do with One message is major and important, and the other minor prophets, their messages are minor or less important. It's really just an indication that we have given to describe sort of the length of these prophetic books. The first few prophetic books, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel, these are, you know, they're larger books. And so we often refer to them as the major prophets. And then as you get to the latter part, of the prophetic books. You get the shorter books there as we tie out the rest all the way through the end of Malachi together. So uh, again, remember when we're looking at these prophetic books, important to understand a couple things, you know, one that the spirit of the Lord was speaking through these prophets and many a times they were speaking of things and giving messages that they themselves did not even fully understand. And it's important to remember that as we go into these prophetic books, that there's always kind of this, what we refer to as the near and far fulfillment of things that they're speaking about. Prophets would both uh, foretell as well as foretell. And what I mean by that is often we hear prophecy and we kind of tend to just naturally think of prediction, speaking of what's coming ahead. And that is an element of prophecy because certainly God is a God who dwells outside of the time realm that we live in. He is the one, remember, who is the great I am, which means he's the ever-present God. He is the beginning and he is the end. So he spans the beginning to the end. And so because of that, God can speak about something that is going to happen next week, next month, or if the Lord tarries next year or three years from now and he can speak about it in the present tense because he's already there. Uh, And so he can speak with incredible accuracy. That is one of the things you'll notice that sets apart the word of God as well from all other so-called religious books is that none of them want to involve an element of prophecy because when you do that, you instantly set yourself up for being proved as a non-factual religious book to a degree because once you err once, you fail. Uh, But God's word has so much prophetic language in it where the Holy Spirit directs the writers, those who are speaking, to speak of things far in advance and how many all throughout scripture prophecies have already been fulfilled and others yet to come to pass as well. And so sometimes God speaks in a manner through the prophets where he is foretelling things that are coming. But other times we'll see where they're basically just foretelling or they're just speaking forth a timely word from the Lord. And so because of that, we always kind of have this shift of both a near fulfillment, that is maybe the prophet is speaking of something in the present tense, in the moment, or in the very near future in the historical context of that time. But then there's also at times where the Holy Spirit in the midst of the language of the prophet will then kind of, if you would, go from the microscopic look to taking the telescope and zooming and looking way far out And speaking of something that, in a sense, is going to have a far fulfillment. And we we see that as we go through the prophetic books. And that does make it difficult sometimes to exactly know maybe where the prophet is speaking about. But on occasions where we're not 100% sure, the wonderful thing, is Peter says in his writings, that the prophets being led of the Holy Spirit, they themselves at times were saying things, being directed by the Spirit of God, that they themselves didn't fully grasp. And in some ways, we understand more now. Because we're on the other side of the cross and the resurrection and we have the light that is given to us in the New Testament and the culmination of Christ and his work that allows us at times now to be able to see some of what they were speaking about that hadn't even come to pass yet. So. Again, with those things said, let's jump in and just read verse 1, and we'll give sort of some background to Isaiah's prophecy in connection to it, but it's a, a good preface verse to even head into an introductory consideration of Isaiah's prophecy. It says, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Now, the vision of Isaiah. The name Isaiah means Jehovah is salvation, or we might say Yahweh is salvation. It's the Hebrew tetragrammaton. We're not 100% certain, is it Jehovah or Yahweh? But Jehovah is salvation, and a very fitting name because that's in a lot of ways reflective of much of Isaiah's ministry, prophetically speaking, God's messages to people, because Isaiah speaks very strongly confronting the sin and rebellion of God's people, and in connection to their sin and rebellion, he warns of the judgment and the punishment that was rightly deserved to come upon them. And in a similar way, he also speaks, in connection to that, much about God's desire and God's plans to spare people and to save people. And to offer forgiveness and restoration, speaking message, as I said, both of near fulfillment of his present time and period in history, as well as being led of the Spirit to see and describe things that have a fulfillment yet future further down, and even in connection to this idea of Yahweh God wanting to save and to spare his people from their sins, So because of that, we, of course, will see as we go through Isaiah many of the statements and prophecies that perhaps we are already familiar with of some of the 300 plus prophecies or predictions regarding the the birth and the life and the ministry and the suffering and the death and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, much of those things, even regarding the glorious kingdom age and the millennial time period when Jesus returns and comes back, we see some of those things referenced in Isaiah's prophecy as well. We'll look at them as we go through here, so we'll see many beautiful things about Christ. Now, Isaiah after the book of Psalms, interesting enough, is the second most quoted book from the Old Testament in the New Testament scripture, and it is the most quoted of all the prophetic books it's believed, notice here, Isaiah is referred to as, verse 1, the son of Amos, or Amos, however you would pronounce that there, that would tie him to the, to the royal family line, which is very interesting because you notice verse 1 reminds us regarding sort of the boundaries of his ministry that he ministered prophetically in the days of four of the kings of Judah, of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Now the fact that Isaiah's family lineage would connect him to the the royal line could have been what gave him, just by, in a sense, a very supernaturally natural way, a very close connection to these kings of Israel that he ministered during this time period because of the family line that God allowed him to be born in. He ministered during the time of what we refer to as the divided kingdom, So, uh, important to understand, Isaiah's prophecy is what we call a pre-exile prophetic book. Remember, the children of Israel ultimately get taken into captivity after the time that the nation is divided, and some of the prophets, Isaiah's one of them, spoke prior to the time of the captivity or the exile when they were conquered and brought to foreign lands, Assyria and Babylon. Other prophets that we'll see... They prophesied during the time of the exile, during the time of the captivity, and then some other prophets prophesied after the time of the captivity. But we're looking now, Isaiah, who was a pre-exile or someone who prophesied and ministered prior to the time of the captivity, and he ministered in the southern kingdom of Judah predominantly. You notice it says that he was speaking of things that he saw, verse 1, concerning Judah, and particularly the capital city of Judah, which was Jerusalem in the days of these four kings of the southern kingdom. Remember, when we talk about the divided kingdom, remember it was after Solomon's reign that Rehoboam and Jeroboam, during those two kings, that's when the nation became divided. And you then had the uh, ten northern tribes, which were referred to as Israel, And then you had the two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, who were referred to as the southern kingdom or often referred to as Judah. And you had separate kings in the north and you had separate kings in the south. And Isaiah was ministering predominantly, it seems, in the southern kingdom of Judah. He had watched the northern kingdom decline badly and fall in his time period historically to the Assyrian Empire who was kind of the strong empire at that time, and he had watched the northern kingdom decline and then be captured and taken away. And after that, he saw the Assyrians beginning to incringe upon the southern kingdom of Judah, and they were now threatening Judah and Jerusalem, and it was becoming a very intimidating thing at that time for the people of Judah as they were in great fear and worry that they were next to be conquered by the Assyrians. His ministry lasted for about over 50 years, from around 740 BC to around 680 BC. We can't be 100% accurate, but somewhere in that reign, and we know that from these kings that are referenced here, for the first 20 years, he spoke both to the northern and the southern kingdom, and then for the remaining 30-plus years of his ministry, he predominantly speaks to the southern kingdom of Judah during the time period of these four kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Uzziah, we know, reigned 52 years. He was mostly a, a good and godly king. He encouraged morality and did many good things in Israel. He brought stability to the Judah, to the nation of Judah, and prosperity. Yet he had some errors along the way. Jotham, we know, his son who reigned next, reigned about 16 years, and he was a very good and powerful king. The Bible tells us he sought the Lord in all of his ways. The third king referenced there, Ahaz, he was the exact opposite. Ahaz was a very wicked king. He was one of the more evil kings in the southern kingdom of Israel. He introduced idolatry and moral corruption, child sacrifice, even himself sacrificed one of his own children. So Ahaz was a very, very wicked king. Now, let me just say as a a connection piece to that, you notice a very godly father and an extremely wicked son. Very godly father, extremely wicked son. That's called free will. That there's no guarantee that a parent can raise their child in the ways of the Lord and do everything right, but because we have free will, we see, and did we not, as we went through our study in First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, sometimes you'd have a very godly father and then it'd be followed by a very wicked son, and then sometimes you'd have that very wicked son who then was the king, and then he would have a son, and then his son sometimes would be a very godly king, and he would break the chain. So the reality is that can work both ways, and interestingly enough, here in the Holy Spirit's record, Ahaz, a very wicked king, and then Hezekiah, the final king, he reigned 29 years. Ahaz's son was one of the most godly kings in Israel. He was a good and godly king. He brought tremendous spiritual reformation. He cleansed the temple. And again, even though he was raised in a morally corrupt household with an evil father in a wicked time period, he chose to not be conformed to the patterns of his parents. He was a chain breaker. He chose not to be conformed to the pattern of his present world and society, but he chose to be a chain breaker, and he became one of the most godly kings that the southern kingdom of Judah had. So, very beautiful to see. We have moral responsibility. Just because they're a godly parents, there's no guarantee it's going to be godly children. No guarantee. And just because you have a wicked parent, no excuse to be a wicked child. Because there's the option to say, I'm going to live differently. I have a free will. I'm going to choose to live good and godly. I'm going to turn the course, set a different pattern for my family and household, and live in a different way. And he took a completely different track, even as one of the kings of the southern kingdom of Judah. So with that backdrop, we know somewhat historically what happened again in that time period. If you want to read 2 Chronicles 26 to 32, that's where those four kings are referenced. Again, if you're a note taker, that's kind of the time period, the record, 2 Chronicles 26 to chapters 32 record the events of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. So the message begins, verse 2 of chapter 1, hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. So it kind of starts out as sort of a courtroom scene. Notice the prophet here calls all of creation to join in as far as being witness to this message coming from the Lord. For the Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner. And the donkey, its master's crib, or the feeding trough, the idea there is the language of the master. But Israel does not know, my people do not consider. Alas, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, weighed down, a brood of evildoers, children who are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel, they have turned away backward. So notice as the prophet begins, the first picture, an analogy that he gives to us as God's speaking regarding his own people who he did so much for as a good and faithful father. And again, I just said a moment ago, no guarantee good and perfect and faithful and godly parent is that a child is going to live godly. God was the perfect parent. God was a perfect father, right? From Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, God's first two children, if you were, became prodigals. And what excuse did they have? (laughs) They had the presence of God. They had a paradise existence. Nothing was wrong. They couldn't blame, oh, it was my upbringing. Oh, it was my culture. Oh, I was wounded and damaged by what my parents did to me. They were in paradise. The only parent they had was God himself, and yet they exercised their free will and they rebelled against God. So I think this is a good thing to remember, even as parents sometimes, you know, we do our best, you know, our children are adults now, but you raise your kids in the ways of the Lord, and there's going to be a lot higher probability that they are going to follow the Lord. And certainly God is going to bless that. But by the same token, we must remember that our children have a free will. And look, even God himself understands that because here God uses this analogy in verse two and three of being like a father to his own people. He says right here, I have nourished, verse 2, and brought up children. In other words, God says, I I provided everything that they needed to live a healthy, fruitful, spiritual life. God said, I supplied all that was necessary. I raised them in the right ways spiritually. Again, referring to Israel. But what did they do? God says, they have rebelled against me. Though God did everything possible for them, lovingly supplied all they needed to be able to walk with him, they disrespectfully rebelled against God's authority and dishonored and really ignored God like they didn't even know who he was. You notice the analogy he uses there. He says, boy, it's interesting. God says the ox knows its owner. The donkey knows its master's crib, its, its feeding trough. In other words, he, you know, we, we often think of an ox in the sense of a we say a dumb ox. He's as dumb as an ox or a dumb donkey, and, and so God says, even these creatures, and think about it, many times the ox and the donkey, these were farming animals, and sometimes their their master may not even have been as easy on them as they could have been. Maybe they got whipped or, or, or beaten at times and mistreated, but he says, boy, it is interesting how there's still this, this consciousness in that animal to know the hand that feeds them, to know the owner, to know where they're in a sense, you know, responsible to, they're responsive. Even these stubborn animals understand their dependency upon their master and they respond in kind. But God says, these people, my people, and that's the sad part of it. God's not talking about foreigners who didn't know him. He's talking about his chosen people, the Jews, the nation of Israel, the kingdom of Judah, who had been in David's line. God says, Israel does not know and my people don't consider. The idea is they don't consider the fact that they belong to me, that I provided the best for them. And again, they were rebelling against God, so sad to see what was going on that they were stubbornly rebelling against God and their actions. And in some ways they were being worse than stubborn animals in just turning away from God. He describes, really, the condition they were in there in verse 4. He calls them, I mean, look at the language. The Holy Spirit refers to them as a sinful nation. Now, I know it's going to be difficult to line up the United States of America with this, but if the Holy Spirit brings application to your mind, that's from him. Sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity. The idea is weighed down. That is, they're overburdened. Their sacks are full. They're doing so many things. Evil things, iniquity is a word that often speaks of being perverse or bent, just crooked. That's the idea there, something that's perverted or crooked. They're laden down with such things. A brood, speaking of the the gathering of a bunch of serpents or snakes, a brood of evildoers, children who are, notice, not corrupt, but what does it say? Corrupters. That is, they're people who not only want to be corrupt, They're not content unless they're corrupting everyone else. You Notice a little bit of that goes on sometimes in the corrupt society of people. They're not content just to be corrupt. No, 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 you need to join us being corrupt. You need to celebrate our corruptness. You need to endorse our corrupt, you need to join our corruptness. And so here he says, they are children who are corruptors. They wanna corrupt others. They have forsaken the Lord, turned away, abandoned him, provoked the Lord to anger. The idea is poked God in the eye. Why? Because he is the Holy One of Israel, and they have turned away backward. Now, you might want to underline that phrase there, Holy One of Israel. That becomes one of Isaiah's favorite phrases as he refers to God throughout his prophecy, the Holy One of Israel. Again, reminding that the Lord himself is holy and righteous. And so therefore, because he is holy and righteous, he deserves honor. And he deserves reverence as a king. And that we should, in a sense, stand in, in all of the Lord. Because he's not just the God of Israel, he's the Holy One of Israel. And so therefore, he is worthy of our honor. And in a sense, it's very disgraceful when we disrespect such things. He goes on, verse 5, to describe what happened to the people as the result of living in rebellion to God. Notice, rebellion doesn't just disrespect God. Certainly it does. Rebellion doesn't just provoke God's anger. It doesn't just disgrace God, in a sense, dishonor him as the Holy One and the one who we answer to as our creator and our provider and our sustainer and the father figure in our life. Not only that, rebellion ruins our lives. You know, sin is... Bad because it's bad for us. It's not just bad in its essence, it's bad for us. I don't know about you, there's never been a time in my life when I've committed a sin where I can look back over a time when I was living in sin and say, man, my life flourished through that. I mean, boy, that sinful practice for a season of my life, boy, that did wonders for me. No, it did ruin in our lives, right? And so here, look, he describes now in a sense, the effect of their rebellion of turning backward and turning away from the Lord. He says, verse five, almost as if he's reasoning with him, why should you be stricken again? In other words, you've brought enough pain and suffering. Do you want to bring more pain and suffering upon your life? God says, haven't you got yourself beaten up enough already from rebelling against me and doing what you know is wrong? Why should you be stricken again? You will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick. Notice the idea there of the the thinking patterns. In other words, again, this is what sin does. Sin causes people to think in in very convoluted ways. One of the biggest problems with sin is it defiles the thinking patterns. When someone is stuck in a pattern of sin or living in a consistent sinful practice, it's as if their thinking becomes just completely polluted and, and their mind becomes sickened. And they can't in a healthy way process good decisions. Their reasoning is completely unhealthy. He says, The whole head of the nation is sick, the whole heart faints, from the sole of the foot even to the head, from top to bottom or bottom to top, there is no health or soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. God's trying to be graphic. They have not been closed or bound up. So the idea is just a festering, pussy, open, gross wound that just doesn't cease to, to, in a sense, get worse and worse, nor has it been soothed with ointment. So again, he's just describing the the destructive effects of sin. And, And here the Spirit of the Lord through the prophet is saying, haven't you had enough? Aren't you sick and tired of punishing yourself? Aren't you tired of the misery and the pain that this is bringing upon you as a nation, that this is causing in your life as a person? Do you want to be stricken again and again? God's saying, are you a glutton for punishment? Verse seven, he says, your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Strangers devour your land in your presence, and it is desolate as overthrown by strangers and in some ways the northern kingdom would experience that as the Assyrians would come in as I said the first 20 years Isaiah was speaking the Assyrians were in a sense conquering the northern kingdom as they were declining ultimately took them away captive and then they began to come upon the fringes of Judah and were pressing towards Jerusalem and so here in some ways Isaiah sees what's already beginning to happen as the nation is becoming defeated he says, verse 8, so the daughter of Zion is left as a booth in a vineyard or a hut in the garden of cucumbers as a besieged city. Again, the, these uh, huts out in the gardens and in the vineyards, they were just temporary dwelling places like kind of, if you would, uh, shacks that they would put together as they would work out in the, the heat to get a little bit of shade. But they were very weak, these shacks. They weren't permanent dwellings. So because it was just a simple shack, it was very vulnerable. It wasn't a safe place to be. A bad storm came, you would be in jeopardy. If somebody tried to come after you, they wouldn't be a safe, secure hiding place. So God's describing their insecurity as they now have foreign enemies coming against them, besieging the city, laying siege to it. And he says, verse nine, unless the Lord of hosts had left to us a very small remnant, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been made like Gomorrah. Now, we remember from Genesis 19, what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? Utter destruction. And here the prophet says, despite our sinfulness, unless it had been the mercy of the Lord to show restraint, he said we would have been completely destroyed. Like Sodom and Gomorrah, we would have been completely wiped out if it were not for the mercy of the Lord, that even when they were sinful and faithless, that God remained faithful because he couldn't deny himself and that God didn't preserve a remnant. Think about it. God was preserving a remnant. Why? Because God was preserving the messianic line because it was through the line of Judah that ultimately Jesus would come and bring about the salvation that we need, not circumstantially, but spiritually and eternally. So God was protecting his plan and preserving his plan, and Isaiah recognizes, man, he says, we could have been wiped out completely if it were not when we were being besieged and attacked. The Lord mercifully left a small remnant. Verse 10, he says, hear the word of the Lord. You rulers of Sodom, give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Now notice, he basically there metaphorically is is using the titles of Sodom and Gomorrah to describe the Lord's people at this time. Now that's a pretty sad testament when he's calling them those who are of Sodom and Gomorrah. And notice the problem, look at verse 10, the problem was not just with the rulers and the problem was not just exclusively with the people, it was both. You see what he says in verse 10? You rulers of Sodom and you people of Gomorrah. God says the problem is both governmental and it's civil. The government's corrupt, and God said, and the people are just as corrupt. It wasn't one or the other. God says in this situation, as the nation was in great decline and the people had been turning away from God nationally, it was now influencing the society, the general general populace, and it was also corrupting the governmental rulers at that time. And what was the only antidote for the rulers of Sodom, the people of Gomorrah, as he refers to them in that way, using a metaphor He says, here's the antidote. You need to hear the word of the Lord and give ear to the law of our God. The only hope to save the immoral, declining nation, God said, was the word of God. That if people would be willing to hear the word of the Lord and respond to it, that was the only possible hope. Again, that should give great reminder to us as we live in these days amidst our nation to realize that the very thing that we are still doing tonight and then being ambassadors of truth and taking the word of God to our jobs and our families and our neighborhoods in some ways as a small remnant of the Lord's people remaining faithful to him, we are in some ways the answer to be salt and light, to be one of the only preserving influences that this nation has, to be those who will still say, listen, you may be buying into this ideology or you may be believing this is the thing to do and you may be getting into all types of perversity in your Sodom and Gomorrah practices and all the sexual perversion of this and all the barbaric, cruel evil of doing that and bloodshed, but, but for us to be able to say, listen, but hear the word of the Lord. This is what God said. This is what God intends for us to be as a people and to be able to be those who can dispatch the law of our God, to realize that that is the only thing that will govern humanity is the truth of God's word and to be able to share that. And here he beckons the people to respond to the word of the Lord and to give ear to the law of God. He says, to what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me? Now, let me read down through this because uh, it's a unit of verses, but, but listen to what the Holy Spirit's conveying here. God says to the people, living very sinfully and immorally, But notice, very religiously, watch this, verse 11. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of the fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbath celebrations, the calling of assemblies. God says, verse 13, I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. The idea is the two together. You see that combination there? God says, I cannot endure people living in defiant iniquity and sin but then still wanting to do the sacred meeting thing. Complete hypocrisy, God's describing. Your new moons, verse 14, your appointed feasts, my soul, Holy Spirit says, my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. And when you spread out your hands, that's how they would pray in that day. They would spread forth their hands in dependency towards God. When you spread out your hands in prayer, God says, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear because your hands are full of blood. The idea is full of blood in the sense of bloodshed. Their hands were were bloody from the murderous and barbaric things that they were doing. Now notice in these verses here, though the people were living in willful disobedience, Right, we've already gotten some picture of that. God describes in verse 4 their their sinful way of living. He describes that they've rebelled against God in our chapter. He just called them Sodom and Gomorrah. That's a pretty strong statement. And though they are living in that way, yet God says they are still living incredibly religious. They were still going through all the routines and rituals of ceremonial worship. They were appearing before God at the regular gathering times of worship. They were offering sacrifices and burnt offerings. They were coming into the courts of the Lord. They were still offering incense as a sweet fragrance to the Lord. They were celebrating their new moons and Sabbaths. They were calling assemblies, coming together for times of religious meetings and assembling together, and even lifting their hands in prayer. And God says, what's the purpose? God says, that's complete hypocrisy. Here they were living in complete defiance towards the Lord, yet they're hypocritically performing all the same religious routines and rituals, as if that was completely okay, as if there was nothing wrong with that. And you can read very clearly, I hope you can get the sense in the language God was disgusted with that. That's what God's implying there, that he was absolutely disgusted with this religious hypocrisy in their lives. They're living in in willful, conscious, ongoing sin, but yet at the same time, simultaneously, they're still playing religious. They're still doing all the routines. They're still praying the prayers They're still going to the meetings. They're still doing everything. And they're basically just living a complete double life. And because of that, God says here, what's the purpose of those sacrifices? They really equate to absolutely nothing but further indicating your absolute hypocrisy, God would say. That you don't even reverence me. That you're willing to just act as if that's okay and and willingly insult me and act like you can live defiantly and immorally in rebellion and yet just play religious and somehow I'll just overlook and if all of that is okay. And here God strongly rebukes this going on in their lives here. He found no pleasure in their heartless spiritual practices because it completely offended him. Again, if I could use this as an analogy, and I know it's somewhat of a strong analogy, but imagine a, a, a spouse Trying to say to their husband or, or their wife, "Listen, I mean, yes, I want you to know. I, I have five or six other partners who I'm sexually active with, but I still want to sleep with you too. Is that okay? And 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 we can have complete. I I, I will. I'll express my intimacy to you. you you'll sense passion coming from me." But by the same time, I just want you to know, I am going to be sexually active with five or six other people. Right? The, the, any spouse in their right mind hearing that would say, that's disgusting. I don't even want to be intimate with you. I want nothing to do with you. It will be completely offensive. right?" But this is basically, in essence, the spiritual adultery that was going on with the nation of Israel is they were going a whoring like a harlot after all these other gods and doing all these sinful practices and living and just complete defiant rebellion morally and spiritually, but yet they were still wanting to pray their prayers and do their celebrations and come to the sacred meetings. And God says, "I I can't even, I can't even, he says, endure, verse 13. He says, I can't endure your iniquity and the sacred meeting being together. God says here in verse 14, my soul hates it. They trouble me, and I am weary of bearing this. And God says, you think if you're going to spread out your hands with a bunch of blood, you just murdered somebody, now you're lifting bloody hands. God, I know I just murdered someone, but I would like you to do A and B for me. And God says, and you think I'm going to respond to that? And again, so sad to see what was going on, but the reality is are there not plenty of people on the planet still, even in our current generation, that kind of are willing to live like that? They're willing to live a complete double life, and, and they live completely in rebellion, and they disrespect the word of God, and they dishonor what they know is good and right before the Lord, but they still want to go through the religious routines and rituals, and they just think somehow that's okay completely missing the heart of God and that utter hypocrisy. But look how compassionate God is. I mean, you hear that language, you would think that the Lord is ready to just write off those who are doing those things. Thank goodness we're not God, right? <laughs> I mean, look at the... Isaiah, Jehovah is salvation. Remember we said that's what his name... Here comes now the mercy of God. His willingness to spare and show compassion. Look what God says, verse 16. Wash yourselves... Make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. So God says, listen, do you want to know what my recommendation is? Rather than you continue in that pathway, God says, clean up your life. God says, let's clean it up. Let's put an end to this, he says here. Wash yourselves Put away the evil of your doings. In other words, God says, put an end to that. Stop it, God says. God doesn't mince where he just says, put an end to what you're doing. Cease doing those evil things, he says, before my eyes. See, that's a lot of times the problem with repentance. Is we forget that the evil or the wrong or the sinful thing that we're doing, we're not just doing it against God, we're doing it right before God's presence. We believe God's with us, right? We believe that everything is naked and bare before the eyes of him. Who, Perhaps if we had a better consciousness that everything I do is before the eyes of the Lord, then maybe when we start to do wrong things, we would realize God's basically standing right there going, hmm, that's interesting. Didn't know you wanted me to look at that on the screen together with you. Wow, that's interesting. I didn't, I, I didn't know you wanted me to, to witness why you speak to that person that way or that you want me to sit here and watch while you steal that or while you do this or what. And again, you can pick your poison there. But to realize that what we do is before the eyes of the Lord, that should be the very thing that brings the power of the Holy Spirit's conviction into our life that makes us realize if we've been doing something that is disobedient and rebellious and sinful, that we would be compelled to want to clean up our lives, put away that wrong thing, repent, which means turn completely away, and go the other way to say this is wrong. No more excuses. No more justifying. Well, it's because it's because it's because of one thing. I'm a rebel, and I'm a broken sinner. That's why I do those wrong things. Not O A B. C. I'm a rebel, and I've got to stop rebelling. And I need to turn towards the Lord and put an end to what I've been doing, and cease doing what's wrong because it's in sight of the Lord. And then He says, notice, not just cease doing what's wrong, but learn to do good. The idea is turn away. And then in a right way, take initiative to learn how to do what's good rather than doing what's evil. How to seek justice. The idea is to make things right that have been going wrong. To rebuke the oppressor. To defend the fatherless and plead for the widow. Again, the idea is to have compassion come back to their lives as a nation. That they would care about the weak and the vulnerable. That they would begin to have the heart of God again and care about what God cared about. The caring of the fatherless and the widow. These were often overlooked, and were very vulnerable in the ancient society of Israel. God then says, verse 18, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. They are red like crimson. They shall be as wool. Again, don't tell me that God's not reasonable. God says to these rebellious people, who were His chosen people, who He did so much for, He says to them in the midst of their rebellion, He calls them to repentance, and then He says, "He says, can, can we can we talk about this?" I mean, this is God. God's condescending, Almighty, the Holy One of Israel is condescending, and He's talking to people, saying, "Okay, can we just be reasonable here? Just just be reasonable." I don't want you to continue to live in that way. And I'm completely willing to totally forgive you, to purge you of all the stain of your guilt. He says there, even if your sins are like the stain of scarlet and red as crimson, God says, I will forgive you and purge you and wash you and make you white as snow. God says, I'm just trying to be reasonable here with you. The problem is often we're not reasonable as human beings. And here God is offering forgiveness, complete pardon, willingness to take away the stains of our guilt no matter what we've done and how much more through the blood of Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that through the blood of Jesus Christ, he cleanses us from all sin, that we can come now to God directly in faith and by grace receive the cleansing blood of Christ to be forgiven and to be washed and that our stains of sin can be cleansed and God can take a life of stain and guilt and make it purged totally clean, white as snow. How wonderful that God offers such. And again, he's saying, please, I'm reasoning. Let's reason together. Why would you not receive forgiveness? Why would you reject it, God says. Do you want to live with the stain of guilt in your conscience? God says, be reasonable. Why would you not let me forgive you and give you a change? But notice verse 19 and 20, We have a free will because look what God says. If you are willing and obedient, in other words, you have to be willing and you have to obey to respond to the Lord's offer. If you're willing and obedient on God's terms, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So the Lord says, I'm trying to be reasonable here. I'm trying to offer you an opportunity for change and forgiveness and to to have a fresh start. And he says, but at the end of the day, you have the freedom to decide. And if you're willing and obedient, he says, you'll experience good. But if you refuse and rebel, which is a free choice, then God says, please know, I didn't necessarily punish you. You invited punishment upon yourself, God says, because I gave you the option. And again, how can we be upset with the Lord? Oh, I just, I can't. And God said, you refused. You resisted. You rebelled. And here the nation had this opportunity to turn towards the Lord. God was offering them despite their condition. He was offering the opportunity if they were willing to turn towards him. And again, I think times the Lord speaks to us and we have to make that decision. Are we going to be willing and respond or are we going to be stubborn and we going to rebel? And if the Lord's speaking to us by his spirit, the the former is the right way to go. But God gives us that choice. Verse 21, he says, how the faithful city, and that's what the city was at one time. But notice how the faithful city, notice, had declined and become a harlot. It was full of justice, righteousness lodged in it, but now murderers. In other words, at one time, the city was living in a right way. The city represented what was good and righteous. They had a good and righteous start nationally as a people, but they had corrupted themselves. They began prostituting themselves towards things that were, in a sense, corrupt before the Lord, and he describes here how they had turned from him in that way. He says, but now they've become murderers. Verse 22, your silver has become dross, the idea that which becomes worthless. Your wine mixed with water, speaking of becoming compromised and diluted, Your princes are rebellious and companions of thieves. Everyone loves bribes and follows after rewards. They do not defend the fatherless, nor does the cause of the widow come before them. So he describes how the corruption had set in among the nation, as he describes in verse 22 and 23 here, these different realities, how everyone was looking at this time to only just get what was best for them personally. He says there, not only had they become compromised, but he says, your princes, your leaders, they've now become rebellious. And interesting, notice the princes, the rulers of the land. Imagine this, not only rebellious, but rulers in a land becoming companions of thieves, looking to do what they can to steal and get what's best for themselves. Everyone loves bribes, God says, whatever will be to their advantage. And they follow after rewards. Hey, I'm going to follow after not what's right. I'm going to follow after whatever rewards me best. And God says this is what the political environment was like in a declining nation where morality was just spiraling out of control and going down the tubes. God says the leaders, the princes of the land, they had become corrupt They were looking to, in a sense, steal what was best for themselves, and they were following after whatever rewarded them the most. It's always a sad place when any of us get to the place where instead of following after what's right, we just follow after whatever would reward us best. We're not called to live self-serving lives as God's people. We're called to consider others more important than ourselves, and here, sadly, it was a very self-serving nation, the outlook at that time Verse 24, therefore, the Lord says, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, Ah, I will rid myself of my adversaries, take vengeance on my enemies. So now God begins to speak of the just judgment that would come upon the people. I will turn my hand against you and thoroughly purge away your dross and take away all your alloy. The idea is putting them through the refiner's fire. And as Assyria came And as Babylon came, that's exactly what God did. He used foreign nations as his instrument to discipline and to judge his chosen people as a nation. God used, in a sense, making them vulnerable to other nations coming in, conquering them, and in a sense, bringing them down. And that was the way that, in a sense, God turned his hand against them by basically taking his hand off of them. At one time, they were a blessed nation. At one time, God's hand was upon them, and the way God, in a sense, turned his hand against them was God said, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm just gonna take my hand off you and see how you do without me. If you don't wanna follow me, if you don't want me as your God, if you don't wanna honor me and you wanna do your own thing, then God says, I'll, I'll turn against you by taking my hand off you and letting you go through the refiner's fire as other nations would come in, Assyria, and then ultimately Babylon as well to the southern kingdom. And put them through the fires of judgment as God's tool of, in a sense, an instrument to discipline them. I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. And afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Now, look how quick, again, it shifts. Verse 26, God speaks of very harsh judgment, right? Very strong discipline whom the Lord loves, he chastens nationally and personally. But then verse 26, what's the heart of God? Is it destruction? No. God says to them right after he says, the mighty one, I'm going to rid myself and bring vengeance upon you. He then says, and after that, once you go through the refiner's fire, he says, my intention is I want to restore you. I want to restore you back to how things once were, that your counselors would come back to how they behaved at the beginning, and once again they'd be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. How how amazing is the Lord that though he can be at times when needed a very stern father, but his heart is not to destroy. His heart is to correct. His heart is to do what's necessary to discipline, but his heart is not to destroy, but to bring ultimate restoration to get them back on a healthy course. Verse 27, he says, and Zion shall be redeemed with justice and after her penitence with righteousness. Again, notice how was Zion, the the, the city of Jerusalem, often a reference to God's people, Israel, how were they redeemed? They were redeemed with justice. Again, redemption speaks of buying someone back who's in a form of slavery and redeeming them back to bring them back out of their condition that they're in back into a place of freedom, redeeming a slave through a purchase price. And God says the way that he redeems his people is he redeems them with justice, with justice. And look, the redemption of Jesus Christ, ladies and gentlemen, that's exactly how that happens in our lives spiritually. We are redeemed with justice so important to understand romans chapter 3 as it speaks about how we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of god and that the whole world is guilty before god and deserves his wrath we do as sinners but that god himself through the work of jesus christ through his sinless life that satisfies the righteous requirement of god as the holy one and then through Jesus' sacrificial death as he was punished and suffered and died and bled out his life in a substitutional way on our behalf to pay the purchase price of redemption, which was necessary because the Bible says the soul that sins shall surely die. And one of the questions we got recently when we were taking questions and answers from the youth ministry was that very question. Why did Jesus have to die? Couldn't God have just forgiven them? And the the answer is no, because God is a just and a holy God. Someone had to die for sin. Sin requires death. Sin requires punishment. The wages of sin is death. The soul that sins must surely die. Someone has to die for my sin. Or God is compromising his justice. He cannot be holy and compromise his justice, nor can he be just and compromise his love. He must be all of who he is all the time. So Jesus had to die because someone was required to suffer the penalty and the punishment on our behalf so that, as Romans 3 says, that God could be both just and at the same time be the justifier to anyone who believes in Jesus Christ. Because what God did in Jesus is sufficient, it's just. He can remain just and at the same time become the justifier declaring us righteous if we believe in Jesus, in what Jesus did for us through his redemptive work of dying in our place for our sins. So again, how wonderful that we've been redeemed with justice, even as they, God says, would be redeemed in a just way from God's perspective. And the destruction, verse 28, of the transgressors and of the sinners shall be together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. For they shall, God says, verse 29, be ashamed of the terebinth trees, which you have desired, and you shall be embarrassed because of the gardens which you have chosen, for you shall be as a terebinth tree whose leaf fades and as a garden that has no water. So again, Isaiah is using kind of poetic language there. Again, the terebinth trees and these gardens, these were groves and places where they would go and they would offer sacrifices to their idols. And so God here is basically saying, those who choose to forsake him and turn away from him He says, ultimately, what that will result in, he describes verse 29, those who turn away and forsake the Lord, he says it will result in, notice he uses two words there, being ashamed of what they had desired to do and being embarrassed because of the things that they have chosen. That's always going to be the end result of sin and rebellion against the Lord. It will always lead to a place of severe regret. Nothing good comes out of it. All that it results in is a person who on the other side of living in rebellion and sin, they become ashamed and they become embarrassed of what they chose to do. And they live with that shame and that embarrassment and that, in a sense, weight of guilt upon them. And not only that, he says, like the garden that has no water, the other is a garden that's dried up and that's another thing sin will do, it will dry up a life. It it ruins lives and he says the strong shall become as tinder and the work of it as a spark both will burn together and no one shall quench them so he describes here how the, the strongest of individuals he says the strongest of men that they are able he describes in verse 31 there to be broken by god and he says when when god begins a process whether it's breaking a nation's back that's rebelled against him or whether it is breaking the will of a human being, he says, nothing's going to stop it. But can I just say this? Did not David say when he was broken, remember, over the great sin in his life with Bathsheba and then murdering her husband Uriah? Did not David ultimately say, he said, sacrifices, God, that's not really what you're looking for. If it was sacrifice and offering you desired, that would be easy. He says, the sacrifices of God are what? A Broken spirit and a contrite heart. That's what God's looking for. God's not looking for us to pay off Him in some bribery through some religious actions. Well, maybe if I did this much wrong, if I do these two or three things right, then I, God says, I just want you to have a broken spirit. I want you to be broken over the wrong thing that you're doing and get real, God says. Get genuine. Be broken. And when David finally was broken, that was the place where he became liberated in his soul and liberated from those things. And what a wonderful thing that that is all God is looking for from us and how wonderful to know that if we confess our sins, Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us as we come to him with a broken spirit. Well, let's stand together.